Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. If you haven't already signed up for our upcoming Global Startup Summit, stop everything you're doing right now, unless you're driving, of course. Please keep your eyes on the road and head on over to globalstartup.tv to sign up and get free access to our upcoming virtual summit. Once again, this is going to be a seven-day online event featuring 35 of the world's top experts in startups, giving you insight into the world's tech ecosystems, along with 14 startup spotlights, which we've sourced from 14 different countries all around the world. The summit is going to go live February 18th to the 24th, and I hope to see you there. But once you've signed up for that, be sure to come on back to tune in to today's episode, where we have a great one with Austin Allred, the co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. Lambda School is a 30-week immersive program that is training the next generation of software developers and designers. To date, Austin has raised $48 million for the from To date, Austin has raised $48 million from the likes of Google Ventures, Stripe, Ashton Kutcher, and was a part of YC Batch in 2017. On this episode, Austin and I dive into the future of education, the university system, and workforce development. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, so now I'll pass it off to Austin Allred, the CEO and co-founder at Lambda School. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide, from sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So Austin, it's great to have you on the show. I've been watching what Lambda School is doing uh, for a while now from afar, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really great and something that definitely believe in. So my, my first startup was in the ed tech space, so I kind of got a, uh, a hint on, on how, how hard it is to build a, a startup in the education space. Um, but before we d- dive into that, can you tell us a little bit uh, about your background and really you know, w- where the idea for Lambda School uh came from? Yeah. Um, so I have no background in education. Um, I, I grew up in uh, Utah. Um, kind of, I got the internet as a birthday present for my eighth birthday. And as I say, the rest is history. So basically grew up online, um, ended up working in San Francisco at a tech company, um, but moved to San Francisco from a you know, kind of small town Utah where my wife and I were living. Um, and just noticing the discrepancy and the opportunity that were afforded to the citizens of San Francisco versus the citizens in that small town um, was, was pretty drastic. Um, and we wanted to extend opportunity of a very high quality computer science education to folks that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it or be able to move to a place where they would be able to participate. Um, and I guess that's the history of Lambda. Got it. And so when it comes to that, I mean, there's this whole narrative now of people leaving the valley of other ecosystems rising. I saw you opened a second office in Utah recently. I mean, do you still feel that's kind of the case where there's there's a ton of opportunity concentrated in Silicon Valley, um, but not not so much, you know, uh, in the secondary markets? Yes. If you're looking specifically at um, ability to learn to code, I mean, I was, you know, in Utah, there's a, there was a school probably an hour and a half north of where I was from uh, or where I was living before I moved to San Francisco. Uh, but that's a big distance to travel. So, you know, 
if someone in that town would have wanted to learn to code, they would have had to, they would have, they would have to move an hour and a half away. They would have to pay, you know, $12,000 up front. Um, and it just becomes a really expensive and daunting proposition. So we still have students in the Bay Area that attend Lambda School, but the, but the purpose is to completely de-risk it for people, make it so it's very, very accessible. There's no cost up front. You don't have to move anywhere. And I think we just tap into a better and bigger talent pool that way. Right. And so when it comes to actually scaling a concept like Lambda School around the world, uh, I saw that you guys operate, uh, I believe, in, in the U.S. and the EU. But like, what, what does it take to, to, to scale this out, outside, of, outside of the U.S.? I mean, is there uh, issues when it comes to accreditation process or you know, what, what are the challenges to, to really scaling this out on, on, on a global level? Yeah, so I mean, we very intentionally build Lambda School to be entirely online. So we don't have, I mean, we have a physical office in San Francisco, but it, maybe five or six people can work in it simultaneously. And we've got 40 people on staff right now. So, so yeah, our staff is remote. Everything is remote. Um, the only thing that makes it tricky to enter international markets is regulation around an income share agreement. So, so Latin School's business model is it's free until you're making more than 50K a year, um, and then you pay us a percentage of your income for two years. If that, that kind of, I guess, income share agreement is regulated differently country by country. Um, so we actually just barely getting into the EU because we've understood the regulatory framework and the job market enough to be able to, to go in there. Canada, for example, we could teach people in Canada without doing anything differently. It's the same same time zone, same staff, same everything. But there's still some some regulatory uncertainty in Canada about how income share agreements work and how deferred tuition works. That's pretty pretty core to our business model. So we're really relying upon you know the re- regulators to see the the virtue of deferred tuition agreements or income share agreements. And then making sure we have a way to verify income. Right. I mean, this is definitely something that's very much needed on a global scale. So, I mean, I, I, I travel a lot outside the U.S. And, you know, from the perspective of a university contributing to uh, to a city's startup and, and tech ecosystem, you know, the, the conversations I have outside the, are outside of the U.S., are a lot of times around how the local university is not doing a good job of uh, you know funneling high quality talent into into startups and, and producing good tech founders and and people people tell me that kind of uh, with the uh, I guess impression that the U.S. universities do a good job of it you know I think uh, it's really interesting to see you know how you know how the university system in the U.S. has kind of it's, it seems gone away from the original purpose of, of a university. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely great to see business models like yourself. And we had uh, Ryan Carson from Treehouse on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, really, you know, filling a gap in the market that has, uh, you know, kind of been overlooked by VCs. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, really why, why has education been such a dirty word amongst VCs over the past five to 10 years? Because it's, it's definitely something that's much, much needed for, um, to, to, to be disrupted? Yeah, um, I think there, there are a few reasons. The, the first reason is how highly regulated it is. 
Um, so specifically, you know, most education companies are looking to target K through 12 somehow. And every, I mean, virtually every student in the U.S. is in a school um, that has a very tight budget and with a very long sales process. So if you're trying to sell it to K through 12, it takes a long time to get a little bit of money. Whereas enterprise, you can, you know, you can do million dollar deals today and they have money for it. It's not, you know, nothing stopping you. And then when you start to look at higher education or vocational training, the market starts to look really big, but really fragmented. And how do you, as a single company, plan to win any reasonable, sizable chunk of that market when there are, you know, 80,000 competitors? So I think that, I mean, there are, there are a lot of schools have had a lot of ambition and have not made it. And there's a lot of scar tissue that VCs have around education. And that just makes it more, more difficult. That's, that said, we've never really had a problem um, raising money. Raising money has not, not been an issue for us, but it kind of all depends on who you're talking to. And there, there are definitely some investors that won't touch it. Well, I mean, what, what, why do you think that is that you haven't had that big of a problem? Because, you know, I, uh, I mean, the, the, the coding school model, um, it's, I mean, there are a lot of different coding schools around around the U.S., and it's it's hard to make it a a profitable model. Uh, I, mean, I guess you're, you're doing it a little bit differently. So, I guess, what about your model? Do you think is uh, is is enticing for for VCs? Yeah, uh, I think first and foremost, it's scalable, and it's scalable in a few different ways. Most code schools are based on charging people ten to twelve thousand dollars upfront. And there are just not very many people that have that amount of money up front. And when there are, there are a lot of people willing to take that kind of money. Um, so, you know, there, there are hundreds of code schools in the U.S. So for us, it's the combination of being online, solving the problem from beginning to end, making it completely free until you're hired, building out that hiring network. We just have a, a compelling story for why you, you know, why Lambda School would win over all the other schools cumulatively because we're coming at it with a different angle and a different model. And, you know, it's getting to the point now where it's just a no-brainer to go to Lambda School as opposed to some of the other schools. So that's, I think that's the, the reason we've had such a, a relatively easy time raising money. Right. I mean, there, there's definitely a, uh, I guess, what I would call an innovator's dilemma with just within the the university system, where they, I mean, they've profited so much on the, um, the 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 way the government has gone about giving out or guaranteeing student loans. At what point does this come to an end? I mean, is there uh, do you, do you foresee a point where the universities are going to start to offer you know different maybe not maybe not exactly your model but different types of model and like reach a point where there's a necessity for them to innovate in and of themselves i'm sure they will um we're seeing some schools that are innovating like purdue for example has income share agreements um they're still fairly locked in for a few reasons they're locked in from a regulatory standpoint um they can't really go you know less than four years, generally speaking, they're very, very reliant on Title IV funding, which is you know federally subsidized student loans. And I, I think the most likely, I think we probably saw peak university enrollment ever in 2016. And I think that there will just be more and more kind of chipping away at that market and universities will 
not adapt and will just kind of keep doing their thing into the grave. I think there's too much institutional inertia for them to, to turn on a dime for the vast majority of schools. Of course, you know, my incentives are such that I should think that way. Um, but that's, that would be my guess. Um, there, I mean, if you talk to Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, he has predicted that 50% of universities or colleges will go bankrupt within 10 years. And that feels like a faster timeline than I would imagine. But, you know, sometimes that's, that's how things work. It like, happens really slowly and then all at once. Right. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not just your incentive. So like the universities themselves are also, you know, it, but by the nature of their bureaucracies are not incentivized uh, to, to be innovative or to do, do anything to disrupt the, uh, the current model of, of what they're doing. Um, yeah, I think that's but, right. you, you see some very motivated and um, interested individuals within universities that want to be cutting edge, that want to, you know, break out of the existing system. Um, but it's pretty rare that they're given room to run or bandwidth or budget to, to do anything interesting. It's just so universities aren't built for rapid change by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that we are now seeing for the first time the point at which the change in the economy is great enough that it makes universities an unfavorable option, given all the inherent advantages that universities do have. Well, that and the opportunity cost of you know business models like yourself coming about where, I mean, you can't, it, it just... Like if I was looking at going to university versus doing land school right now, I mean, it just, it, it wouldn't make sense for me to, especially with the, uh, the success that you guys are seeing with getting your, your graduates jobs on the, on the back end of it. Yeah. I, I think the, the key for us is focus. So laser focus on helping students get a job and we don't replace all that universities do. We're not a good place to go party for a couple of years. We're not a good place to go, you know, follow a football team or join a fraternity. But to the extent that the reason you go to a university is to get a job, I think we can disrupt at least that piece of it. Well, who knows? I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we could one day see uh, the Lambda School football team participating in the NCAA if, uh, if the market heads in that direction for some reason. There's not a lot that I'm very confident about, but I am very confident Lambda <laughs> School will never have a football team. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit more about uh, what what issues you all have hit uh, when when it comes to scaling out this model, uh, because you know it, it it seems like with within the job market there's definitely a lack of software engineers. Um, so it, it would make a lot of sense that the the graduates that you are churning out, uh, you know, quickly you can you can get them jobs. Are, are you all starting to hit some some challenges as you as you scale out this model? Um, so I, I think the difficult thing is making the model work in the first place. Um, so there are four or five different things that can go wrong. And if any of them go wrong, then the entire model is worth zero. So the, the, the reason that no one has started a school like Lambda before is because it's really hard to do. And because if it, you know, if any single piece is broken, then you get zero dollars or you lose money. Um, so we have to have everything working perfectly from admissions to curriculum to placement to marketing to finance um, or, or it all doesn't work. So the difficulty about scaling is really just the difficulty of making it work and continuing to make it work as you scale. Um, surprisingly, I think it actually gets easier in many ways as we scale. Um, we have more 
dry powder to go after creating hiring partnerships. We have more, um, you know, dry powder to go after making sure that the recruitment funnel really makes sense. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's just, it's a non-trivial business model in the first place. Now, besides developments, are, do you have a vision for, for other areas or other verticals that um, to run this model in? Like, I, w- I would assume that design, like web design is, would also be an area that, uh, that this model can work pretty well in. Yeah, um, we have UX, UI design cohorts that are running right now. So that's, yeah, we're already doing that. Um, there will be a yeah. lot of other models that we, or other verticals that we can go into. Um, I don't have any specific details or plans, but they're definitely in the works. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious to, to, to see how this, you know, because it seems like, like th- this isn't just uh, an, an anomaly. I think this this type of model uh, and what Treehouse is doing and what a lot of coding schools are doing, you know, is, is the future of education. And for, for me, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how, um, how how that translates across verticals, especially as you said, you know, over, over the next ten years, as universities start to kind of uh, you know go bankrupt, and in some in, in some cases, that's that's already happening. Especially uh, some of the smaller southern universities uh, already kind of seeing headlines of them hit, hitting some financial struggles. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it will just continue to be the case that universities have built themselves upon taking. Title IV student loans and having students enroll and pay those student loans and then having mediocre outcomes on the other side. I think we're now getting wise to that as a society and there's a lot. I mean, when, when I went to college, I only went for a couple semesters, but nobody talked about student loans. Everybody just said, yeah, do whatever it takes, take out student loans and like it'll all work out on the other side. And now it's true that that is not the case. Um, so it's, it's just a more difficult sell as time goes on to get a lot of students to enroll and drop, you know, hundred tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And are you, are you finding that with the, um, the students that are going through your programs are, are, are they coming out of, uh, are they coming out of university finding that they can't really get a job and then going to Lambda school or are you, uh, you know, is it more so people that want to are, are later in their careers and kind of want to reinvent themselves and uh, take a new path? Yeah. Um, so in the beginning, it was mostly people who either had college degrees and had been in a career path um, or who um, had never finished their college degree and ended up in a career path and wanted to change. Um, in the beginning, that was very much the case. Now we're seeing quite a lot of students opt out of going to college, or instead of you know going back to get a master's, they'll come to Lambda. Um, and you know, more and more every day, we're seeing students straight out of high school just saying, "This seems like a better value proposition, and I'll just do that, and I'll be in the job market a year from now, making really good money." I mean, the the, the net difference of going to a school that you know, costs $50,000 a year versus going to Lambda school can be upwards of half a million dollars between tuition and earnings during the four years. And one will have, the student that goes to Lambda will have three years of work experience. The student that goes to college will have zero years of work experience, you know, after year four. I think there's a lot going in our direction. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. And so Austin, before we dive into the quick fire round, I would real quick just be curious to hear a little bit about 
uh, I saw that you you spent some time traveling through uh, throughout China. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your your experience doing that. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a Mormon family, so I served a Mormon mission in eastern Ukraine. I speak Russian fluently. Um, went back to uh, school for a semester or two, and just got really bored. Um, so I moved to China. Um, just because it seemed like a lot of stuff was happening in China at the time. It was always in the news and it was, you know, this big new thing that nobody really understood and I wanted to understand it. So I basically bought a one-way ticket, took one suitcase and just kind of figured it out as I went, ended up kind of vagabonding around. My my home base was Shanghai, um, but yeah, I just would go somewhere new and stay in a hostel and um, worked online and just kind of was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's, that sounds very much like uh, my experience in Africa, actually. Uh, you know, f- through doing this podcast, I kind of got some insight into what was happening in the startup ecosystems there. Uh, felt like it was, uh, it was a, kind of a hot topic. So I, I booked a one-way ticket, spent some time on the ground in, in Kenya, actually, um, and that kind of a, a similar experience to you. So um, it's, it's, it's good to hear someone else who, who, who took that leap. Uh, but Austin, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round. Four questions up to 60 seconds each. Sound good? Sounds good. What is your favorite business book or book about startups and why? Ooh, um, my favorite business book, which isn't really a book, um, are the Amazon shareholder letters. Um, or the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters are pretty great too. Um, just seeing the the history and the knowledge in that you know Buffett and Bezos have um, is, I think, the best business reading there is anywhere. That's a great. That's actually the the, the best answer I've gotten to that question uh, on the show so far. That's good. So, so thank you. That's that's interesting. Uh, who is a female entrepreneur that you ex- respect the most right now, and why? Ooh, oh man, there's so many. Um, I'll say Saku. Um, I don't even know how to say her last name because it's um, a, a Persian <laughs> last name. Um, but the founder of Asteroid, they're building um, a VR developer toolkit. Um, and I mean, I, I'm friends with her, and I just think that she's pretty brilliant and underrated. So I have to say Saku. So if you can book a one-way ticket today, uh, similar to how you kind of had that gut feeling about China, where, where would it be and why? Um, if I were going for like a vacation, I'd probably go to Europe somewhere. Um, if I were going for where I think the next business opportunity would be, I would go Southeast Asia. I think Southeast Asia is still underrated by VCs and investors, and I think it's going to grow more quickly and the GDP of those countries is going to grow more quickly than most people in the United States understand. Yeah, I, w- I would a hundred percent agree with that based on what I've kind of learned and uh, seen from this show. And finally, what is your favorite thing about living in Silicon Valley? Uh, the people. Um, Silicon Valley generally is not like a super fun place to live. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's beautiful. The weather is amazing. There's, you know, beaches and mountains and all that stuff. Um, but the the traffic is kind of miserable. It's super expensive. 
Um, the thing that makes it worth it is just being within striking distance of all these brilliant people. And whenever someone says, hey, let's go to lunch, you know, you can be having randomly having lunch with a founder of a billion dollar company and not think twice about it. And that's I've lived in other places and that's not true in any of those. So just the, the right. network of brilliant people who have been around the block several times is the most valuable part. Well, Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberke, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 